Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In an experiment. Like so far. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, bizarre solutions to simple problems. And one person's journey from climate lawyer to climate activist. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Noah Baker. First up on this week's show, I recently had the chance to talk to Randall Munro, the cartoonist behind the hugely popular webcomic XKCD, which features stick figures, a lot of pop culture references and science jokes. If you've ever been to a scientific conference, I'm willing to bet you'll have seen at least one of his cartoon strips used by a speaker to illustrate a point or to get a laugh at the end of their talk. Randall has also written a series of books, the latest of which is called How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems. I asked him about some of the real-world problems he looked at. I took a lot of simple problems that you might encounter in everyday life, like, you know, the the hassle of packing to move or um, how to make friends with people. And I, I'm one of those people who will always find a much more complicated way to do things that I have convinced myself is going to be worth it in the long run. And so I'll say, okay, I know this looks like it's too elaborate or too complicated, but once it gets going, you'll see what a good idea this was. And inevitably, I'm still trying to get it working when the people who are solving the problem the normal way are already done. Yeah, and I I would say all of your questions, then I've got some in front of me here, how to jump really high, how to play football, which works on both sides of the Atlantic, which is great. I mean, they all have sensible start and then things quickly veer off into maths and physics and ridiculousness. Yeah, I usually start somewhere uh, kind of straightforward. And then I often find, you know, I'll come up with some weird idea. And then of course, I just want to know, would that actually work? So my friend had uh, ants that were in his house. And he texted me and said, I'm so frustrated trying to get these ants out. You know, we've tried all these different things. Could I just build a moat of lava? And then that the ants couldn't cross? How much would that cost? And right away, I was like, I don't, I don't know. That's really interesting. And then it's like getting a song stuck in your head. Uh, When I hear a question like that, I just like, I need to know the answer. And so I I think I sort of stopped on the sidewalk and started researching like lava heat flow and the engineering involved in uh, keeping a moat of lava hot. 
so that I could come up with a price estimate. Well, Randall, what does your sort of research process look like? Do you start with a blank piece of paper and, and a question mark at the top? Sometimes I'll have read, you know, a research paper or I'll have a book on hand that I think has an answer in it. Sometimes the questions are strange enough that the best place to look isn't uh, necessarily a research paper or a scholarly source. At one point, I remember I wanted to to find out whether or not pollen, when it falls from trees, is particularly flammable. I thought it might be because it's, you know, dusty particles, but I wasn't sure. And I was reading through a couple of papers on pollen and fire risk, and I, I was having trouble finding a straight answer. And then I realized, wait a minute, the world is full of teenagers with <laughs> matches. And I just went on YouTube and searched pollen flammable and found all these videos of people lighting pollen in their driveway on fire and causing a huge dangerous, you know, foosh. And that was a much faster way to find the answer uh, to the question, is pollen flammable, than a research paper. Well, what is the value of talking about, well, the, the absurd in many cases? I mean, you talk about opening water bottles with a nuclear bomb to fill up a swimming pool, for example. What's the value of using these scenarios to answer questions? I think that it lets you explore ideas that would otherwise be kind of abstract. So in the example of using nuclear weapons to open water bottles, for one thing, it it sounds ridiculous, but it is something that the U.S. government actually tried in the uh, you know early Cold War era. Now, they were actually trying not to open the bottles. What they did was they set a bunch of bottles out near uh, ground zero. They mostly used beer, I think, but also carbonated beverages, and uh, measured how well they survived the blast and whether the liquid inside was still drinkable. Exploring this idea is a way, uh, like, I learned this history that I didn't know about, you know. And it also is a way to learn about uh, nuclear weapons and about glass bottles, They found that in general, the bottles weren't broken unless they were knocked off the shelves. And it's also just fun. Like, I find that even when a question is not practical at all, I get excited about knowing the answer. And if I find out there's a way to get it, especially if it involves some interesting research, uh, I just really enjoy it. I mean, you've got some uh, some guest stars as well, you know, as part of your book. Notably, Chris Hadfield, an astronaut, and Serena Williams, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Um, and, and they got involved too and seemed to be quite good sports about it. Yeah, I think that the chapter where I talked to Chris Hadfield was probably my single favorite part of the book. I did a chapter on how to make an emergency landing. And Colonel Hadfield is a test pilot in addition to being former commander of the International Space Station. And so I asked him about unusual landing situations. He just answered every question. No pause, no hesitation. When I asked him the first question about, if you have to land in a cultivated field, which crop is the best to aim for? And he just immediately, you know, says, well, I fly small planes, and that's the kind of stuff we think about all the time. When you're driving to the airport, you keep an eye out. You look around at the fields and think, how high are their beans right now? Have they brought in their hay? Uh, Has it rained recently? Because you can't land in a muddy field. And he just went on like this, laying out answers to every stranger and stranger question. And it was all very matter-of-fact, and he had a flight he was going to. He actually kept talking to me. He said, oh, no, hang on. I'm just going to scan my boarding pass and I'll be right back. And then he continued talking to me as he walked down the jetway onto a plane. And I think at that point, I finally had to I had to end the interview because I didn't want him describing how he would land a plane if he were trapped on the outside as he walks down the aisle past all the other passengers. Uh, I, I was like, we must be freaking someone out here. Your book is absolutely rammed with facts. I mean, what's the one that kind of blew your mind the most that, you know, if our listeners to hear one fact, what was your favorite? 
Uh, one really uh, surprising fact I learned was in the chapter on how to deliver a package from space. How do you throw it out of the space station and protect it so that it will uh, make it down to the surface without burning up? Almost anything you throw out of the space station will burn up in the atmosphere, but certain very thin and lightweight objects may slow down and descend without ever reaching high temperatures. So if you wrote a message on a piece of paper or a piece of you know baking paper and it were curved right, you could potentially toss it out the window of the space station and it would just flutter all the way to the surface intact. So there was actually a project to launch paper airplanes from the International Space Station by some Japanese researchers, uh, which sadly uh, never went through. Goodness. I mean, I guess if we ever see a piece of paper floating down with help and just an arrow pointing up, then we need to, uh, to, to <laughs> have a close look at it, right? Yes, the return to sender is a little bit more difficult. That was Randall Monroe. His new book, How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems, is available now. If you'd like to hear a longer version of this interview, where Randall tells me about moving house, physically moving a whole house on the back of a truck, getting Serena Williams to hit tennis balls at a drone, and more of the questions he threw at Chris Hatfield, we'll be putting up a podcast extra later in the week. And later in this show, we'll be finding out how well countries have been doing at meeting their climate targets. That's in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Dan Fox. They say that love is blind, and that could well be true for honeybees. Queen honeybees often head off on mating flights, where they mate with multiple males over several days in order to increase the genetic diversity of the hive. This is great for the queen, but not for the first males she mates with, who have less chance of passing on their genes with every additional mating. So what's a male bee to do? Well, there's a sting in this tale, metaphorically speaking. New research suggests that honeybee seminal fluid can alter a queen bee's vision. Queens who were inseminated were less responsive to light and were more likely to get lost during their mating flights. There were even changes in vision-related genes in the bees' brains. This might make queen bees less likely to risk leaving the hive for extra mating flights, meaning more of her offspring will be descended from the first male she mated with. Buzz off and read more on that evolutionary arms race at eLife. When you started this podcast, your brain would have lit up differently depending on which digit you used to press the play button. That's because most people have a kind of topographical map in the part of their brain called the somatosensory cortex, with a different area representing each of their fingers. A group of researchers wondered how much this map might be shaped by experience. They studied the brains of two artists who were born without arms and who paint by holding a paintbrush between their toes. They found that these artists had toe maps inside their heads, brain regions that responded to sensations on individual toes. These detailed maps weren't found in the control subjects. The authors suggest that human brains are flexible enough to form maps based on our behaviour. There is a limit to the brain's flexibility, though, and experience in childhood may be key. Find that paper in Cell Reports. This week, Nature is taking part in Covering Climate Now, a project featuring over 250 media outlets around the world. We're all publishing content about climate change in the lead-up to the UN Climate Summit in New York. 
One of Nature's pieces is a commentary from environmental lawyer Fahana Yamin. Fahana has a long pedigree on the United Nations circuit, attending almost every conference of the parties or COP, and she was a lead author on three of the five IPCC reports. But after decades spent in negotiating rooms, writing legal advice, and constructing treaties, something changed in Fahana. In April this year, she swapped her UN resolutions for a backpack and a fair amount of nerve, and glued herself to the London offices of the petrochemical company Shell. She joined an activist group called Extinction Rebellion. Now, six months on, Nature's chief opinion editor Sara Abdullah went and met Fahana at her home in London for a coffee. Many people in the UK will actually remember seeing you on the front of newspapers as the woman who glued herself to the steps of Shell. Take me back to that day in April. Where you found yourselves on the steps of one of the world's largest oil companies. So on the day itself,、um, all five digits of both hands stuck completely down on this pool of superglue,、um, and then it took the police officers、um, about twenty, thirty minutes to prise each finger off. And then I was taken to a police station, Lewisham,、um, where there were many, many other activists.、Uh, and、um, yeah, I stayed in the police cell for much of the night, and then was released. So we'll come back to the impacts of your night in a cell in Lewisham. It's not often spending a night in a cell in Lewisham can really change the world.、Um, but just the road that led you to those steps—you're not the sort of person that would usually be gluing themselves to the steps. Of an international oil company, if we go back ten years, twenty years, there's words like Kyoto and Paris on your CV. What does being an international environmental lawyer at the highest levels involve? My work at、um, these negotiations is to support the legal, procedural, and strategic interventions by small island states. I often work for the Alliance of Small Island States, or a combination of those and the, the least developed countries. And I give them advice on, you know, when interventions are needed, what the contents of those should be. I usually work in close association with the scientists that are also advising all of these. So the Volta Fas that you've been through this year is kind of wholesale. You've gone from crafting. Carbon taxes and carbon markets and levers inside of international governance to writing in the pages of Nature. These things allow the incumbents to just continue to pay to play the same old games. So, what galvanised you? What was the moment when you thought, "Stuff this! I've tried to be a good girl, <laughs> good woman, for three decades." I've really tried, but I've reached the end of that particular road for now. I think the IPCC report, the 1.5 degree report that came out in October, when it did finally come out, something snapped in me about、um, why we've got this report, but you know it's not going to get listened to or get ignored again. And it was too much. I felt like I had to do something different. So you joined Extinction Rebellion. You lent them your skills, honed at all nighters at twenty-two cops or however many, most of the cops, and you moved the needle. Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes utterly changed the public discourse 
on the need for action. So you've talked about April. What happened next? Greta came to the UK and um, met with all of the political leaders from every single party, asked those political leaders to do something and also to talk to Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion had meetings then with the government and I coordinated a team of uh, Extinction Rebellion rebels to be present at that meeting. And then a motion was passed which recognises that we are in a climate and environmental crisis and which calls on the government to take urgent action. So it was the first time that a motion of this kind had been passed by a a national government. And now um, more than half the councils in the UK have declared a climate and ecological emergency or a climate emergency. So that's the kind of professional success. But on a personal level, one of the working titles for the piece that you've written for Nature was No Going Back. Um, So you've stepped away from XR now, Extinction Rebellion. Um, Can you just go back to being a lawyer at the highest levels? Um, (laughs) I hope so. I think so. Um, I I feel that most of the climate environment um, community that I was part of, the policy community and some of the green environmental NGOs that I worked very closely with, were in fact... Um, very proud and I think Extinction Rebellion built on all of their work actually so one of the most concrete things that happened is that Theresa May's government then passed legislation making the UK one of the first countries to have a legally binding net zero by 2050 target which had been worked on for decades including by me including by all of the environmental NGOs in this country so it was a collective win for everyone. Having had a taster of overnight more or less change does part of you worry that you could be back inside another airless committee room getting really cross with everybody oh yes i do a lot a lot um (laughs) so a little bit uh, i'm sort of training myself up to be more patient again and remember that i can't just be a rebel inside the un in that way i'll have to make sure that the countries whose future is at stake become more rebellious. Actually, that's my role, is to make them shout and scream and not accept um, a less ambitious outcome. So I feel I understand what my role as a rebel inside will be, and I hope that you know members of the public, other professionals, will keep on rebelling in their roles wherever they find themselves. That was Fahana Yameen in conversation with Nature's own Sarah Abdullah. To read Fahana's comment piece and all of Nature's other Covering Climate Now content, head over to go.nature.com forward slash climate now. That's all lowercase. We've also got a Covering Climate Now news chat this week, and I'm joined on the line from New York by Jeff Tollefson, reporter here at Nature. Jeff, hi. Hello, Ben. Well, Jeff, for our first story today, you've been taking a look at how different countries are getting on at sticking to their pledges from the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Um, Maybe you can give us a sense of what that agreement was and what they agreed to. Yeah, the 2015 Paris Climate Pact was signed, as one might guess, in Paris. And uh, basically, the countries of the world came together and they set a collective target of limiting warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels over the coming century. So that's the that's the kind of the overarching pledge that all countries made. And then as part of that, each country submitted its own individual pledge saying what said country would 
try to do over the coming five or 10 years in order to reduce emissions. You've been taking a dive into the data for these countries' pledges then. What sort of things have you found? How, how are they getting on? Well, I think generally the the news is bad on two fronts. Many countries are not quite keeping up with their pledges. Governments are coming up short in many cases, though there has been progress. The larger concern, perhaps, is that uh, these pledges are in and of themselves insufficient in order to meet the goal of limiting warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So even if the countries did meet their pledges, it still would not be enough to accomplish the goals of the Paris Climate Pact. So which countries are falling short of their pledges and and who's maybe doing better than expected, Jeff? Perhaps the United States is the big one as far as falling short. It will come up short in terms of its uh, overall emissions pledge. And President Donald Trump has pledged to pull uh, the United States out of the Paris Pact altogether. China is a case where the country's doing fine in in terms of meeting its pledge, which was to cap the overall greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, But, you know, China could do more. And some researchers think that they could indeed cap their emissions well before that. But coal is growing in China again. And if you're serious about uh, climate, you you, you don't want to burn coal. Um, So they may be doing renewables, but they're also pushing forward with coal again. The EU falls somewhere in the middle. The EU is likely to miss its target, perhaps by a few percent. Um, It might even meet its target. But again, that target is insufficient if you believe in the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. Speaking of coal then, and of fossil fuels in general, if a country wants to lower its emissions, it has to stop burning them. And you've been looking at the trends towards moving to renewable energy sources and how this might be used to mitigate future warming. Well, there's the good news in this story. Renewables are exploding. And by renewables, we're usually talking about solar and wind. The prices for both have plummeted in the last decade. Prices for batteries have gone down. So there's a lot of movement in the renewable energy industry. And if you kind of project forward long enough, it seems perhaps inevitable that solar will overtake coal and that renewables will become the leading source of, of, uh, of new energy. The problem, again, is that uh, we don't have time to wait for those uh, curves to bend the way that they might normally under conventional economics. Governments need to do more to push those curves down. In, in many cases, the graphs are very much going in the wrong direction, Jeff. And if countries are going to meet their pledge to try and limit warming, they, they kind of really have to get a move on. I mean, what what is your reporting uncovered on on how likely it is that this will happen at all? Yes. Well, the the leading authority on all of this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, put out a report in December of last year looking at 1.5 degrees of warming, both impacts and how to get there. And their bottom line conclusion was that if you want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, you have to cut global emissions in half by 2030 and then zero them out by the end of the century. Those are stark numbers indeed, and there's zero evidence that governments are up to that task. So the question becomes, how fast will governments be willing to move and how fast will new technologies come along that will uh, reduce the costs and make it easier to mitigate in the future? And what about the toll of future climate change on different parts of the world? Well, the gist is that uh, the countries that have emitted the most in terms of greenhouse gas emissions are seldom the countries that will be impacted the most. 
If you think about the global warming's impacts around the world, they're likely to hit the poorest regions hardest. And within those regions, you've got vulnerable populations where people don't have the resources to respond to climate change, to move away after a storm, to uh, adopt new technologies in, in agriculture. So these are the people who are going to get hit the hardest um, in the decades to come. One of the factors that that is obviously very important for countries who are trying to mitigate the effects of climate change, and particularly the ones the most disproportionately affected, is, of course, funds. Um, and, and that's the focus of another news feature we've got coming out this week, Jeff. That's correct. Um, this one focuses on the transfer of money from wealthy nations to developing countries to help pay for climate um, activities. And the short story here is that wealthy nations committed to provide $100 billion a year by 2020, a decade ago. And it looks like they're going to fall short on that goal. Also, how you measure progress on that goal depends on how you define, you know, what you call climate finance. I mean, so much sort of uh, arguing over the details, Jeff, when clearly things need to be done now. Um, the numbers involved are fairly staggering, but uh, but who's putting up the most? Where, where is this money coming from then? Well, it depends on how you look at it. In terms of total financing, Japan, Germany, and the EU are on top. But if you think about it in terms of uh, per capita financing, then Switzerland comes out on top, followed by Luxembourg. So, you know, the the numbers vary depending on how you look at them, but they are fairly substantial. If you think about the United States, um, there's a commitment for $3 billion in financing, but President Donald Trump has committed to withdrawing $2 billion of that. We might not be quite reaching the targets of, of what was promised then in 2009. What sort of things are current funds being spent on? Well, I think a lot of the money goes to renewable energy projects, but the money could be used to fund anything from agriculture to seawalls to hold back rising oceans. So there are a lot of needs in these developing countries. And the reality is that $100 billion a year is not going to be enough. It's a drop in the bucket. Finally, then on this one, Jeff, the $100 billion a year spending commitment then it was due to you know be reached by 2020. If nations aren't going to meet that target, what happens next? Well, that's an open question. This is just one phase in a very long program that governments have committed to. And there are discussions ongoing about what qualifies as finance um, under this commitment. Does it have to be government donations that come direct from government coffers? Or can it include business investments or loans? These are all questions that governments will have to sort out over the coming years. And the biggest question, perhaps, is whether wealthy nations will eventually step up to their future commitments. Well, certainly something to keep an eye on there. Thanks, Jeff. Listeners, head over to go.nature.com slash climate now to find more on those stories. That's it for the show. Keep an eye on your podcast feed this week for a Covering Climate Now edition of Backchat, where we'll be finding out why nature is taking part and the importance of the words, phrases and images used when covering climate change. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.